We have a question that's been offered this evening, which says, Why does the incense make your eyes water? By Jack Bateman, age eight, from Sunderland. I have enjoyed visiting. Can I live here? (laughs) Well, the simple answer to that is come back again in 12 years' time. And regarding why the incense makes your eyes water, well, it's, um, I think the, um, the answer to that is that uh, you don't have a mindful and wise relationship with the incense. I'm not sure how you would tell an eight-year-old that, but, but um, I'll leave that up to those who have eight-year-olds to translate that into their language. Um, but there is a point there, of course, that uh, when you're eight years old and and you, you see something fascinating, something beautiful, fragrant, and you try to get up real close to it, and then the next thing you know, it's hurting you. And uh, like fire, isn't it? And children, little children, fire's fascinating, and, and uh, they're sad. One of those things in life, they've got to learn the lesson that if you get too close to it, it burns, it hurts, and, and one of the basic lessons in life is uh, how to have an appropriate relationship with the world we live in so that we don't get hurt more than we need to. We're going to suffer, we're going to have pain, There's no way of getting around that. We have this sensitive organism that we're going to have pain. <clears throat> But if we don't get too close, if we don't grasp in the wrong way, well, then we're not going to suffer. I think I've probably told you before that one of my early experiences of of great disappointment and disillusionment with, with, uh, with Christianity was when my grandfather, who was a, a, a vicar from Yorkshire, the Reverend Wilfred Duncan, a good Yorkshire padre from the war years and, and um, Baptist minister. And I, th- I can't remember exactly. I know I was very young, and I think I'd been showing some interest in, in, in the beauty of nature and in bird watching and butterflies and, and things. And he called me into the living room one day and, and, uh, and showed me. He said, oh, you're going to like this. And on the couch... There was this moth, beautiful moth, and he'd stuck a pen right through it. And so he stuck it to the, you know, sort of stuck a pen through it so that I could come and admire it. <laughs> and I didn't, somehow, there was a, a dissonance there. I didn't quite have the appreciation that he, he hoped I would have. And, and uh, of course, you know, I went on in life to. 
<laughs> go grabbing at beauty and, and uh, killing off things that might otherwise have been beautiful and uh, to be appreciated. So it's not as if I suddenly learned the lesson of life very young, but it is a very important lesson to be learned. That even if something is beautiful, it doesn't just say if we, by grasping it that, that we're going to enhance the pleasure or the joy. And what's, what's really called for and what is the, uh, the essence of, of our mindfulness training is a cultivation of a respectful appreciation. A respectful appreciation, I think, yeah. Like sometimes the, the, the word sati that is so often repeated in the Buddhist teachings and we hear about it all the time. And these days you hear about it, it is used as a psychotherapeutic technique, mindfulness training and so on. It can be very kind of analytical and, and, and a little cold-hearted. But if we consider mindfulness as a respectful appreciation of things, that, for me that gives a different sort of angle on it. And anyway, with regards to this question from um, Jack Bateman, somebody had told me earlier that this question was here and uh, from an eight-year-old, a question from an eight-year-old was sitting waiting for me to address and and I got to thinking about, well, what would, I, what would I want to point out to an eight-year-old? What I think is worth learning, you know, worth teaching. How, how could you benefit an eight-year-old? And, and immediately what came to my mind was I would want to teach them about the place of respect, how important respect is. And immediately what came to my mind was uh, how to, how to, and the value of showing respect to people who are older. Now, I don't. What might have been on my mind actually at that time was I think I'd just been doing some exercises and I had a bit of a pain in my back, <laughs> and I was experiencing the pain of aging, and I was reflecting on what it's like when you're young. You say, "Oh, these old fuddy duddies," you know, they kind of get around with their hunched back and limping and you know they haven't put their dentures in yet and they can't hear properly and and you know they're kind of ugly aren't they you know old people are ugly i'm preparing the calendar for next year and well actually 2010 i started look getting the pictures together and i'm looking for photograph of of senior sangha members and i'm going through all these photographs and but there aren't any beautiful ones <laughs> they've all gone ugly physically and if you're not if you're not, if we don't learn appropriately, if we don't learn wisely, then because something is not sensually attractive, we devalue it. And I think you like these those paintings, beautiful paintings done by the masters of bowls of fruit and flowers. You know, they're always nice round fruit, isn't it? Beautiful, absolutely beautiful. And sometimes they manage to get the light and the colour. These nice bowls of fruit. They're in a kind of wrinkled up old mangy old fruit they? It was beautiful but the reality is sometimes the really delicious fruit is a bit old isn't it like i mean passion fruit do you know passion fruit in new zealand we had passion fruit vine and, and the really old wrinkled ones are the ones that are really delicious nice smooth rounded passion fruit are just not worth thinking about or bananas Slightly brown, grotty on the outside, inside they're really sweet and yummy. 
that takes some degree of appreciation. If we're just fooled by the way things appear to be, then we get excited by and deluded by the outside appearance, whereas actually sometimes something that's a bit wrinkled and weathered is better for you. And in that, that, uh, that report that came out recently, how they found that damaged vegetables produce a certain sort of chemical that actually protects the immune system, boosts the immune system and protects you from all sorts of diseases. And we're busily only buying the very nice, beautiful green vegetables without any bruises or damage on them. And fruit, likewise, if it's got a bruise, throw it out. Turns out, actually, some of this damaged fruit and vegetable uh, is better for us. So it's, a, it's a, something we need to learn. Uh, and, and thinking about this eight-year-old boy, and well, one of the things I would like to teach an eight-year-old, if I could, I don't know how to do it, but if I could be to somehow teach them the value of respect, that if we don't know how to feel respect and show respect, in this case we start to think about people who are older than us, then we miss out. Mm-hmm. No. Partly it was, as I said, um, probably my own creaky, painful body that stimulated this, this uh, line of thought. But also, I'm sure it's the sense I have, which is a sense of, of sadness, that uh, when, when you see in society how disrespectful uh, sometimes young people are towards those who are older. And I, I spent uh, enough years in Asia myself, uh, traditional Buddhist culture, to uh, have any conditioning I had about uh, age being devaluing getting older equals devalue, uh, I had that conditioning undone and quite the opposite, that the older somebody gets, you learn a new language whereby the older they are, the, 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 the higher the honorific you use as you address them. And the people get older, you show them more respect. And, and I have to sometimes stop myself from asking people here in Britain how old they are. They start to look a little bit old and you ask them how old they are, sometimes people don't like to tell you, which is the cultural value here, which I think is always a kind of pity, really, because I, I genuinely believe and feel that the older somebody is, actually, the more worth they are of uh, paying attention to. And you can learn from them. But this is, this is a habit that uh, we, can, we, we can train in, and, and we can be taught it, and we can learn it. There's all sorts of habits that... If we're not taught them, we don't have them. Like uh, discussing this morning after breakfast with some of the monks here, we're, we're talking about how well, one of the monks was saying how his grandmother taught him to be very frugal and that uh, you know, turning lights off and closing doors to save heat and, and that if you pull a tissue out of the box, you, you, know, you tear it into thirds, so you only use a third of the tissue at a time. Or actually, you only have toilet paper in those days and you just have one little square of toilet paper. Whereas now often you see them take a box of tissues and kind of pull one, two, three, four, ting, throw it out. And, uh, and they say, well, you know, there could be a, a kind of conditioned attitude which makes you all uptight and, and neurotic. But it could also be a, a useful attitude, a useful habit that one was trained in and that you want to value and hold on to. And so... What I've been thinking about since this morning when this, I was told this question was here, I think, well, teaching people when they're young 
the value of showing respect. By example, you know, to really make a point of showing young people how to show respect to others and to point out the value of it and, and to appreciate for oneself quite consciously the value of it. If we don't have this, then what we can feel is that somehow by lowering ourselves, so to speak, physically or emotionally or in any other way of of showing deference uh, in front of somebody else can be a sign of weakness. We could have that feeling. And I I know I've shared with you before my experience in in Thailand as a young monk where I suddenly discovered I wasn't just bowing to Ajahn Chah, I was having to bow to these American monks. And I found it very difficult. It was easy to bow to Ajahn Chah or Ajahn Tate, but some American monk who was more or less my age and has only just come out of the war in Vietnam that I'd been recently protesting against, I found very difficult indeed. And yet this is what we were asked to do. Ajahn Chah was very insistent. In some monasteries, the the senior monk realized that this wasn't a cultural tradition for Westerners, and so he didn't insist on it. Ajahn Chah insisted on it. He said, it's good for you to learn how to do it. And initially, I did. I felt this resistance. But because it was, if you stay there, that's what you have to do, I did learn how to do it. And my experience was quite to the contrary what I had thought. Instead of making myself weak by showing respect, actually I felt more able. And something that I started, I recognized was my ability to not show respect was itself a weakness that left me vulnerable. And so, again, to say that uh, this is a habit that is something that we can we can train in, and one of the ways of training it is to reflect and and to be quite conscious of why it's a useful thing, how to show how how to feel respect, how to show respect, and and why it's a useful thing. To feel and to show. When Lung Po Cha uh, visited America and, and England and went back to Thailand, and and uh, I remember him talking about his experience there, uh, I was still in Thailand when he came back, and and he was talking about this egalitarianism that Westerners are into, and he was particularly shocked by school students and the way they they talk to teachers, as if they're just like mates, you know call them by their first name and, and, and don't make any overt gestures of respect. And when he started talking about it, I initially thought, oh, well, he doesn't understand the different culture and ties are so hung up on hierarchy and if he'd stayed longer, he'd probably understand. But as he continued to talk about it, I, uh, my thinking changed. And the image he used was he said, he said that, if you, if you want to benefit from somebody, or if you want to benefit from something, you put it up higher. You lift something up. And then naturally, you know, naturally it falls down to you. It comes down to you. And it, so it was a symbol. It was a, a symbolic image that he was, he was offering. But the point of it was, I think, it does accord with reality. It does accord with truth. That if you lift something up, then we ourselves benefit. And there's... Um, there's also uh, some scientific evidence to, to, to back up the, uh, this and with regards to, for instance, how you position a Buddha image that uh, is suggested in traditional 
Buddhism that you don't put a Buddha image down lower, you don't put it on the floor, you, you hold it up. And what the scientists have discovered is that actually the angle the eyes go into, a certain angle the eyes go up, actually triggers a different activity of the brain. And this conduces to veneration, to respect, and to benefiting, that if we respect something, then we ourselves benefit. So if we don't appreciate this, well, then very sadly we can uh, make the mistake of, as I said before, thinking that by showing respect or showing veneration or showing deference that we are somehow becoming subservient or we're somehow becoming weak. The reality is that that being able to show respect puts us in a position of where we're able to learn. And there are a lot of examples in in uh, the traditional Buddhist teachings, in the, the Pali Canon, the scriptures about this, and, and one of the most, one of the earliest ones is a, a situation where the Buddha, after his enlightenment, um, went wandering for a while. Then eventually, when it was time to teach, he approached the the Panchawagi Bhikkhu, his five companions. But as he approached them. They looked at him and they just said, oh, here he comes, here's Gotama, you know, our mate Gotama, that he, he got all soft on us and they didn't make any effort to, you know, welcome him or, or treat him with respect. They just kind of sat there and, and the Buddha was disinclined to make any effort to teach them until, until they actually recognized, oh, this is not just our mate Gotama, this is somebody who's, something's changed. This is somebody who we can really benefit from and immediately, they made the gestures of respect that one does towards a teacher. And in so doing, then that triggered the Buddha's inspiration to impart the uh, Dhammachakapuatana Sutta, the first discourse. So now sometimes people would uh, people will say, oh, well, that was just Indian custom, and uh, that may well be the case, but uh, I was reading an interesting uh, commentary on this by Bhikkhu Tinisaro, who... Uh, he's, he's very well schooled in the party canon and, and he was uh, pointing out how there are plenty of opportunities where the disciples of the Buddha could have followed the other traditions that were around in India at the time where they, they didn't practice this sort of deference or composure uh, towards teachers um, and they were quite free to follow those paths but they chose to follow this path that the Buddha encouraged of showing deference, of showing respect to the teacher of practicing composure and attention because, not just because it was custom, but because it accorded with Dhamma, that it, it's the disposition of a student. And as students of Dhamma, as students of life, as students of reality, the appropriate disposition is one of respect for appreciation. And if we don't know how to feel respect, and if we don't know how to show respect, then... We're the ones that are limited. And so we're the ones that miss out. So to recognize this quite consciously, that, uh, that there's a value in this somehow to, I don't know, in some way of, of, of showing children this, teaching children this, or, or for ourselves also in our own practice. Um, and sometimes, uh, you know, with regards to approaching teachings, whether it's written teachings or, or verbal teachings, listening to them. You know, we can approach them with a very sort of worldly attitude. And uh, 
I know this for myself. You listening to some teaching that's being given, and and if you, the mind can be, oh, I don't like that. Oh, that's no good. Oh, I could have said that better. Oh, he hasn't got that right at all. There's all this kind of going on inside. And if you stop and look at that, well, are we really in the optimum position to benefit from what's being ordered? Maybe, maybe actually, maybe fifty percent, maybe even seventy percent of what this person is saying is not much good. But what about the other thirty percent? Or even if it's just another ten percent. And so what the Buddha encouraged was this the disposition of a student, uh, of a disciple of Dhamma, is one of, of respect to actually to 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 feel respectful to, to that which is being offered and then to also demonstrate, to find a way of demonstrating, showing, expressing respect. There was a situation very recently in one of our communities where one of the senior members of the community, been around for a long time, been training for a long time as a monk, uh, felt he needed to point out something to some of the younger people and uh, made it clear that he just wanted to say this and... And uh, the, the the younger ones uh, really didn't like what was said, and didn't like how it was said, and immediately got into wanting to challenge it. In telling me about it, you know, my reflection on that was was immediately well, you know, he made it clear that he wanted to just point something out. He didn't want a dialogue. Now, a secular, worldly attitude is well, I'm entitled to a dialogue here. No, you're not. <laughs> <laughs> there can be that assumption if we're coming from a worldly attitude. Yeah. But if we have the disposition of a disciple, of, of reality, of Dhamma, a student of life, then if somebody a, a lot further on the path than we are says they want to point something out to us, our practice is to receive it and to listen to it. That's, that's the appropriate attitude. So, now, the idea that that makes us weak somehow, I don't even want to look at that, because what happens, and what happened on that occasion, actually, where the younger ones insisted on having some sort of a dialogue and they didn't get it, it ended up being a very disappointing meeting, a very unpleasant, a very painful meeting, which is sad. Because I know the person, the senior person, and I know, you know what their intention was and what their effort was, and it was very good effort and very good intention, but it wasn't appreciated. So one of the uh, very important lessons in life, I, I feel, and, and uh, if this eight-year-old was here, I don't know how I'd tell them, but I certainly think it's a, a very good habit to learn to, to cultivate the attitude of respect, to, to contemplate respect. So what is it? How? Where? When? To feel? To show? To whom? Yeah. Uh, very early on after the Buddha's enlightenment. And that's recorded in the Garava Sutta. Now, Garava is the Pali word for respect. And the Garava Sutta is recorded there where the Buddha was talking about how he was thinking, he, as I say, recent after his enlightenment, and he was sitting there and the thought occurred to him how painful it is to live a life without anybody to admire and respect. So what a painful thing it is to live one's life without anybody to admire and respect. So who is there that I should admire and respect? And, and then, he, then he had the thought, well, the reason for showing admiration and respect would be 
the reason for doing this would be so that I could perfect some as yet unperfected virtue or, or some knowledge. But contemplating further, you realize, well, all the virtues and all the knowledges uh, have been perfected and realized. And there isn't, in fact, anybody to whom I can look up and, and show admiration and respect for. And then the thought occurred, I've got it either. I know. I'll respect the Dhamma. I'll respect the principle of truth, the principle of reality. And then uh, in this discourse, the Garava Sutta, uh, it's recorded that the great god uh, Sahampati came flying on down and, and sat in front of the Buddha and, and said, so it is, so it is, Lord, that all the arahants of the past, the arahants of the present, and all the arahants of the future have lived dwelling in respect and devotion and dependence upon the Dhamma. So even if in our lives we don't necessarily find that we uh, have the good fortune of living in close proximity or in the company of those that we feel a lot of respect or admiration for, um, that, that can be the case. Uh, um, we can, and we are encouraged to, the Buddha encouraged us to actually to direct our respect towards Dhamma, towards truth. That, that's always there. Reality is always there. Reality is always here. Truth is always here, and we can bow to that. And we can teach ourselves to bow to that. If we don't want to bow to truth, to bow to Dhamma, to lower ourselves to that, then then it's wise, and we're encouraged to not get judgmental, and you know, not have a quick idea, but to feel that resistance, to feel that fear, to feel that resistance, and to learn what we need to learn about that. In the Mahamangala Sutta, which a discourse that you would have heard us, heard us chant many, many occasions, and, and some of you at least will be very familiar with, is one of the stanzas this, Garavo Chanivatocha, Sanduti Chakatanyuta. Garava, as I said, is the, the word means respect, and Garavocha Nivato, and Nivato is humility. Now, these are great blessings that the Buddha is encouraging us to cultivate. The word Garava is, uh, I think, I think probably this is a word that in Thai, uh, you, sometimes you hear the Thai people when they're leading a gathering, one of the leaders comes out with his words, Grah! You know, it's a kind of funny noise. That, <laughs> I just think, well, what's that all about? Well, it just basically means bow. And uh, it's, I think it's the Thai rendering of the word Garawa. Anyway, the, <clears throat> the Buddha was pointing out in the stanza that cultivating, cultivating respect and humility is a great blessing. You know, this is not just something that either we've got or we haven't got it. But remember, all these teachings that uh, all these suttas are given us, these are indicated. This is worth investing in. If we invest in this, <clears throat> then what we get back is really useful. We invest in that, then what we get back is not going to be so useful to us. And the Buddha said, I've only taught things that are going to be useful for your freedom from suffering. I didn't teach you anything else. I haven't taught you anything that doesn't pertain to freedom from suffering. There's lots of other interesting things in life, but what I've taught you pertains to the freedom from suffering. And this is one of the things of this cultivation of, of respect, how, where, when, to feel it, to show it. Um, and also humility, uh, nivatocha, is very closely related uh, to, to respect. Another teacher I remember reading, pointing out how, I think found it very, very helpful that 
you know, humility is great. We all think humility is a great idea. But how do you actually cultivate it? And this teacher was pointing out that 50% of humility, 50% of humility is recognizing we need help at the time we need it. That was very clear. Oh, that's good. Well, basically, that's all there is to it. It can't be anything more. What's the other 50%? And then he's surprised. The other 50% is the ability to ask for it. Oh, that's really helpful. Yeah. The cultivation of humility, this is what we can do. If we want to cultivate humility, is that at the time where we, where we feel we need help, to have the ability to recognize, that, oh, right, I really need help. In this, you know. We can get around puffed up chests, you know, feeling like we can do it, I, I can tough this out, and you know, months, years go by, enduring things, and really what we need is to go and talk to somebody who's travelled the path or knows a little bit more than we do. And so to be able to recognise that at the time we need help, and then to value, to value the ability to ask for it. Do mm, really value that? And this... This, again, this, uh, I think this valuing is the essence of respect. And one reason why I'm you know, contemplating this early today, why I think it's such a helpful habit uh, to teach children. Because if, if people don't learn the meaning, the value, the meaning, the essence of respect, well, what, it, what, what that comes down to is they don't know really how to place value. When we respect something, we're valuing something. Uh, and this, in this sutta, the Mahamangala Sutta, with a cultivation of garavocha nivatocha. Garavocha, actually, it means more than just cultivating respect. It means respecting that which is worthy of respect. Like in the beginning of that sutta, it says, pujaja pujani anang, which means give off a devotion or do puja towards that which is worthy of devotion. You know, don't go giving devotion to gods and things that must just make you weak. You know, likewise with this, respecting that which is worthy of respect. And we have to, we're encouraged in this mindful cultivation of respect. Yeah. We're encouraged to exercise our discernment, to look and see. We're not, this is not just intimidation, so you should respect such and such. Yeah. But to exercise our discernment, so that we can see, is this worthy of respect? Yeah. Over and over again through the scriptures and the example of the great teachers, uh, there's always the, the encouragement to recognize we've got this potential, we've got this power to discern. Yeah. You can listen. Like If we listen silently to some teaching that's being given, we're kind of quiet and they're kind of, yeah, 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 that's going on inside. We listen. All they're agreeing, disagreeing, we kind of let that fade out. If we can't quieten that, well then we're vulnerable. We can't really discern. We're just going to have a reaction for or against. But if we let that quieten down and we're listening silently, then there's something there they can tell. Yeah, yeah, I trust this. I trust this. And then we can feel that trust and let that trust empower us and and guide our, our, our contemplations. Yeah. Or I distrust this and say, no, that doesn't ring true. Yeah. So if we don't have that in a quiet, we can't let go of our constant agreeing, disagreeing, our inner dialogue, we can't let go of that, well then it's, it's difficult. 
But if we can, we let go of that, and then we can contemplate. As we're listening to something, is this worthy of respect, or is this not worthy of respect? And if it is worthy of respect, well, then it becomes easier to show the respect. So we're exercising discernment. Mm-hmm. It's not just a, a condition thing. Sometimes you'll see traditional Buddhists bring their children to the monastery and then they, they bring them up to the Ajahn and, and then they get them to bow. And they put their hands in Anjali and, and then the Ajahn says, very good, very good, uh, very well done. And they praise them to bits and, and uh, say all sorts of encouraging things. Now you could think, well, this is religious intimidation. And, uh, and conditioning going on there. But there is a point to it that if, as children, you know, we're encouraged to value the ability to show respect in this way, we've got this, we've got this in us, we've got it, it comes easy. <laughs> now, if that's all we've got, if that's all we've got, and we don't exercise our discernment, well, it makes us vulnerable. That's not very good. But if we haven't got that, which was the case for me when I first joined this outfit, yeah. I had the discernment, I was very clever at discerning, but I didn't have the ability to show or even necessarily feel respect, not consciously. So that's helpful in this cultivation of, of, of garava or the cultivation of respect, to balance these things, yeah. to, to learn to be able to feel and show respect but also to balance that with discernment, the questioning. These two things go together. All of you, I hope, have got uh, got this year's calendar pinned up on your wall, and, and, and some of this might ring a bell with you. There's that nice photo of Ajahn Brahm and Ajahn Preacha sitting at the feet of uh, Chalkun Prom, one of, the, uh, one of the senior Sangha members in Bangkok, and he's patting Ajahn Preacha on the back, and... But the verse there, which uh, verse Dhammapada, verse 76, which points out that only blessings can come from seeking the company of wise and discerning persons who give admonishment and advice as if leading us to hidden treasure. And that's very important. Wise and discerning persons who give both admonishment and advice. A wise and discerning person is, in fact, leading us to hidden treasures. But if we don't have a if we don't have the ability to feel and show respect, then we're not necessarily going to be able to benefit. That's the point. We might be with somebody who's much further on the path than we are, but we don't have an appropriate disposition. We don't have a clean container. You know, we get some really nice clean water and then we put it in a filthy container and then it gets diseased. If we don't have the appropriate disposition of a disciple of reality, of truth, of Dhamma, then even though we may be around wise and discerning persons who are offering both encouragement and advice and admonishing us, we don't like it. All we get is resistance. I, I can't. I have this experience. It's a very difficult thing. Where, as a young monk, I would ask somebody to show me to do something, and as soon as they started to show me to do it, I'd get all hot and bothered. It was a very humiliating experience. That um, thankfully I seem to have overcome it somewhat, but it really struck me once. I was asking one of the junior monks, who was very skilled at using a power tool, like a planer. You know the planer? The, the really a bench saw planer, not just a little rinky-dink thing, a real heavy bench saw planer that you can easily take your finger off with, very easily. 
and he was showing me how to use this. I asked him to show me how to use it. And as soon as he started showing me how to use it, and this, this heat and resistance came up within me. And, and that's a sign of weakness. As, uh, there's something there that needs looking at. Not to be judging it, not to say it's wrong, but to have that kind of resistance, and particularly in that case where I've asked for help, but even if we haven't asked for help and somebody who is able to help us is offering admonition, correction, pointing out our faults, of course we don't like it. But does that activate this resistance? And if it's not necessarily a person, sometimes it's life. Yeah. Sometimes life chucks it at us. <laughs> you say, take this. Yeah, some big disappointment. And are we able to bow into it and say, teach me what I need to learn? I'm still here causing trouble. Or do we stiffen our shoulders and our, up around our neck and the heat rushes up and we get indignant? So this shouldn't be this way. Why is this happening to me? So I don't know if this eight-year-old boy is going to get to hear this Dhamma talk, but anyway, um, I hope that uh, these thoughts are of uh, some benefit for you in your own contemplations. Thank you very much this evening for your attention. <coughs>